Welcome to Conlangery, the podcast about all about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley, and over on the other side of the Potomac, my lovely co-host, Bianca Mangum. Hello. And out in the middle of the country, in Wisconsin, we have William Annis. Howdy. Kind of not the middle of the country, but the, the north of the middle of the country. The Midwest, in fact. Yes. Upper Midwest. Yep. Is that what they call it? Yeah. Um, I was listening to, uh, as we're recording, there's a new LCS podcast out. It's an interview with Sherry Wells Jensen. By the time you get this, this it might be a month or so old uh, for your listeners, but Seeing as it's the LCS podcast, it's probably still going to be the latest one out there. But I highly recommend it. She's not a conlanger per se, but she uses constructed languages to teach linguistics, and I think it's a very interesting episode. I agree. I I listen to it myself. Uh, I have been saying for a few years now that these days, if you want to get a PhD in the classics, Greek or Latin, you're still expected to be able to produce Greek and Latin, <laughs> um, and maybe even Greek and Latin verse if you go to a British school. And, and I think there's a value to having linguistics grad students have to create a language or two and then explain themselves and justify themselves before their classmates and uh, faculty. It, you just You just get a better feel for weird little oddities, I think, when you have to construct a sensible system on your own. That's not what she's doing it for. Her her goals were much more modest. But uh, I can dream. Well, she was talking more about teaching various linguistic concepts mm-hmm. by having them construct languages. And, I don't know, it's somewhat similar to what you're talking about, is it gives people some hands-on experience other than analyzing existing languages. Yeah, I didn't listen to the podcast, but I'd have to say, like, this that's why I like learning languages rather than, you know, just reading grammars. I think there's something else to be said about the way you know something when you're able to produce it rather than look at it, if that makes any right. sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, anyway, I just wanted to recommend that as our to our listeners. I kind of see this podcast as the complement to the LCS podcast. They have all our all the interviews that we would put in as special episodes and such. <laughs> I think with that we can just roll into our our uh first topic here. This is a topic that was brought up actually with an email I think that we wrote, read on the previous episode uh, about word creation. I don't, I don't remember if it was episode five or episode six that we read this guy's email, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, but anyway, there's one thing that you need if you want to create a language that will be useful at all, and that's words. 
You need lots of words. <laughs> At least 2,000 or 3,000 if you want to have actual conversations. I don't know. I haven't ever gotten to that point. But, uh, <laughs> and so we're going to talk about some techniques you can use to fill your lexicon, some, and some ideas about how the language and the word formation, the language's structure and its history go along with word formation, word creation, and what tools you can use for this sort of stuff. So I'll throw it to Bianca. Ah. How did you make words for Inyauk? I made stuff up. I'm not very scientific. I don't even use like awkward, which is one of those random word generators. I don't even use that because I don't like it. I just make stuff up. Um, I think I did mention the word generator, which a lot of people like to use. But I don't because there's stuff that I guess is inherent to the way my phonology is that I just don't know how to include in it, like frequency or um, like certain phonemes are not as frequent as others. And um, just I like to sometimes have like kind of a running trend of like uh, one phoneme kind of going, I, there's a word for it and I can't remember. Just like aesthetically, some sounds go with other things, kind of like, you know, sa in Inyauk is kind of reserved for unknown things or unspecified things, and it's very infrequent. So if I did use a reward generator, I probably wouldn't even add it in the phonology because it would crop up too much. Interesting. The, there are... The, the better word generator programs let you attach frequencies to sounds. If you don't want them all evenly occurring, you can go in and, and weight them as you see fit. Another trick I do, if a system isn't smart enough to do that, is just put every letter in multiple times <laughs> and have some in more often than others is, is a good way. It, it seems like everyone who knows a little computer programming and who invents languages eventually writes their own word generator. So if, if you don't feel like doing, you know, random distribution statistically, a, a good way to fake it is, you know, put it in an S in five times and a T in two times and, you know, whatever else. <laughs> That's such a crap way to start. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it works, obviously, but it's yeah. just like, it's the ugly way to do it. It is a little ugly. I've never actually used a random word generator. I'm like Mianka, I like to do it by feel. The problem with doing it by feel, I think, might be just the fact that, you know, I had times, at least with my first language, where I was just making up words, making up a list of words, and I just, like, ran into a rut of, I made just, like, 20K words in a row. Right. So. That's exactly why I like word generators. Of course, I wrote my own <laughs> in, a, in a language no one loves, so I don't have to worry about ever explaining how that works to anyone. But I noticed myself doing exactly this, overusing certain sounds, which is fine, right? You don't expect all of your phonemes to occur with equal frequency. But to, to keep myself from falling into that habit, I'll write in the rules with all their complexity, 
generate a few thousand words and just dump them all into a file. And then I go and pick what I want. So it's not like I'm assigning meanings to words. I'm just producing a large set. Yeah, and I just, can randomly yank some things out and either tweak them if, if I don't think they're quite right or take them as is, as I need words. So that's just root words, though. I love yeah. derivational morphology, so. Well, and York doesn't really have derivation, but it, it has quite a lot of affixes. So there's actually a really limited set of root words I have. And just because of the number of affixes and because it's agglutinating, they just get preposterous after a while. <laughs> I like that idea. My whole idea has usually been that I will create words as I need them. And basically my idea is part of how I construct languages I was I would translate stuff and as I needed a word I'll make it. As I needed a structure I'll make it. And for my and uh, as far as derivations can, are concerned, my first language has a lot more derivational morphology than the the second one. I don't know what that means necessarily about the two languages. The second, the first one is more isolating than the second one, so that might have something to do with it. Do you still invent your language this way? Because I'm always much more systematic. It'll be like today I'm going to invent all possible relative clause structures. What? That sort of thing usually takes me a month to decide on. Something about relative clauses just make me do research. But if I only created that part of the language which I needed to translate for, I would have all the structures and vocabulary for the Babel story and a few Aesop fables, and that's it. Well, yeah. You need some (laughs) better translation exercises. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's that. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm. I don't go directly about anything. I tend to translate things, and then every once in a while, like lately, the thing that struck me was like reflexives. I don't have reflexives. I need to do reflexives. So I did that, but I've never been like I need to do this now. It's just like it's when I want to say something. Yeah, I never did actually do a big chunk of syntax structures at once. I would create all my case markers at once or something like that. Or create verb paradigms all at once. That's one <laughs> thing I did for Iruyo. I did all the verb paradigms including uh, examples of irregular forms and such. Hmm. Yeah. My normal habit is to go completely bonkers with derivational morphology. And and that might have come from being exposed to Esperanto at a tender age, which, you know, has this magnificent system of, of derivational systems so you can concoct words on the fly. But I have sitting next to me here a, a grammar of West Greenlandic, and all of the Eskimo languages have these huge, astonishing derivational systems. <laughs> that really have some magnificent things. Like there's a special derivation that lets you produce a verb that says something smells like something else. Yeah, that's a very interesting stuff. I am often in- inspired by derivational processes in other languages. Uh, the verb-noun compounds in Yeltach are very loosely based on 
a verb noun compound structure in Spanish. You might know from the word rascacielos. Yeah, rascacielos, chupacapras, cumpleaños. Lava platos. Yeah, where you take it's basically the the root form of the verb, and then a then the noun uh, plural. The, the plural of the noun, which. I didn't do it exactly that way, but that's the way the Spanish does it. What I did was I had a special verb form that I used in relative clauses that I put first and then the noun because Yeltak doesn't have plurals or gender or anything. So that's interesting. You use rel- a, a relative clause structure to produce no vocabulary. It actually is parallel to the, the relative clause structure. So... The first word I created this way, yelakaja. So, yelas in yeltach means to speak. And so, uh, this is, seems a little noob-langing to me when I think about this now, but the relative clause form, the ending is a glottal stop, so it's yel, yela. And then I add, kaja means alien. And Red as a relative clause is, it sort of reads as, which speaks to aliens. But the meaning of it as a word is, it's a specific cast of the the uh, Hala clones that through some technical means have the ability to shapeshift and they are used to communicate with alien beings. Sure. There's a... Uh... That's a that was a little bit of a tangent. Well, I think it. Oh, sorry, I don't want to interrupt you. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say the the boundary between derivational morphology and grammatical or syntactic morphology, depending on the language, can be quite thin. I mean, Navajo has this wonderful system. Pretty much any phrase can be turned into a noun, and that's the normal way to bring new vocabulary into the language. My all-time favorite word in Navajo, which is made up of a phrase, is which means one spins around with it. Literally, what it means is cell phone. That's interesting. <laughs> right? So I've heard two explanations for that. Either the phones in Navajo land had horrible reception first, or, you know, teenagers spinning around on their phones and not paying attention. But this is the normal way Navajo brings new words into the language, but it also, that same process is used all the time for grammatical features. That's interesting. I've seen a somewhat similar thing in Chinese, a little more restrained, but like, even with simple vocabulary, you will hear people use buhao, as a word. Buhao is literally just not good. And it you can analyze it also as bu meaning not and hao meaning good. But it seems to be analyzed as a single word a lot of the time. Hmm. Yeah, the isolating languages have a, a harder time of concocting vocabulary because you typically have to produce these phrasal things. Yeah, and sometimes they can be analyzed multiple ways. It's sort of... Yeah. Although you may have, even in an isolating language, you might have words that are that become 
essentially only used for producing these these phrases. So, do you have your uh, William? Do you have your actual word generator online, or is it something you only use personally? I only use it personally because it's written in a programming language that will get me hate mail. So I I just don't. <laughs> I'm just not interested. Oh. I'm just not interested in listening to people whine about me using uh, Common Lisp. So I just use my tools myself. Okay, but there there are some that are online that are more sophisticated. Um, I can't remember the URL, but there is one that will let you put weights on phonemes, and so you can come up with some pretty con- sophisticated um, sound descriptions. Uh, I, I actually like the exercise of putting everything into a word generator because it makes me certain that I have described the syllable rules correctly. <laughs> if, if nonsense comes out of the tool, assuming I understand the tool, um, then, then I realize I've done something wrong. I think maybe when I start constructing, I have several languages I want to construct for a book. Uh, I may go with the random generator route because I'll be creating like two or three languages and I just don't want to have to keep in my head all those different uh, phonotactics rules. See, I think this is why I don't enjoy the generators because I'm not very specific without the phonology at all. Like, I seriously do it, write the words, then I go back and take a phonology from it, which makes trying to type something into a word generator ridiculous. Oh, sure. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm typically, I typically have a pretty good idea of what the language is going to look like before I move on to dumping things into Well, I know what generator. it's going to look like. I just don't know how to put that down. It's like, I have an idea what I want it to sound like. But that doesn't mean I'm consciously aware of that, if that makes any sense. Yeah, sure. I mean, even with the generator, I still produce a big chunk of vocabulary just off yeah, the top of my own. I, I think the only time I was fiddling around with one was when I was I was starting. It was a couple months in, and, you know, it's kind of annoying to have to translate and make a word, make a word, make a word. So I was just going through some nice word lists. Oh, I want to talk about word lists, too. Um I was going through a couple word lists, like Swadesh type thing, just, you know, so one day I could go and look for a word and it would be there and then it would be magic and I wouldn't have to make it up. Um, but word lists can also kind of be a good thing and a bad thing for creating vocab. I mean, depends on how you take it. Depends on what the language is for and what the word list is about, because... If you have a very general word list, I think Swadesh would apply to a lot of things. But, yeah. uh, but like, I've created languages for, you know, astral spirits and for space aliens. So, there, when I look at word lists, a lot of times about half the words are irrelevant. Yeah, I mean, you always have to take that little bit of consideration with word lists, which is why I think people don't like posting them so that, you know, some new person doesn't just end up relaxing what they have, and then that's annoying. But um, when I started, someone 
with one of those languages with the huge vocabs of like 20,000 words, he sent me like the word list he used for his. And of course, you know, it was actually helpful because even if I didn't use the one word, like the word for fork, maybe I didn't use it. But it still gave me a place to think about like what kind of utensils are they going to use and what would they call them or what else? Um, like weather terms and stuff like, you know, you're probably not going to translate it's raining just because it's not an exciting sentence. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't have words for rain or how it would go about. That's why I like word lists because they're a nice place to start. But of course, you don't want to go through and translate someone else's words list word by word. Right. Uh, well, um, translating with what's raining is interesting from a syntactic perspective. Well, yes. Not necessarily because of the words, although, you know, you might need a word for rain. You probably, most places are going to have a word for rain, I think. Uh, Will, you were saying something? Um, I was, but forgot entirely what I was going to say. A oh. lot of, oh, I was going to say, it's raining isn't even a verb in Inyauk. <laughs> oh. Oh, I was going to say, I, I, these days, the creation of words is something I spend a lot of time thinking about. Mostly derivational techniques. Because, <laughs> because I do not I really do not want to keep relaxing English or these days I'm likely to relax both English and ancient Greek are, are the, the two danger zones for me. You know what's dangerous? Not so much English, but Spanish. Sure. Like sure. with these reflexive, I'm trying to think of places to use them and it's all just coming out the same as Spanish. I'm like, I don't want afetarse. I want something new. Oh. <laughs> and I'm trying to think of like something that's semantically going to work and I'm like, crap. It's right. all the same as Spanish. I mean, one of the things I've been having fun with in, in in the current set of sketches leading up to a language is this idea of what are known as instrumental prefixes, and they pop up in a bunch of language, native languages of the Western United States, where you have verbs describing actions that are very vague, like knock over, or even... or more entertainingly, you have mostly intransitive verbs, meaning things like fall over. But then when you put one of these instrumental prefixes on, you get a concrete transitive meaning. Like if you use the foot instrumental prefix, then it means to not kick something over with the foot. If you use the, <laughs> if you use the wind or uh, mouth prefix, then it means to knock something over with, you know, by blow something over. Um, and these languages may have a very small number of instrumental prefixes with obvious things like hand and feet and, and other may have dozens of them. And one of my favorites, and I forget, I think it's in Kashaya, they have a special instrumental prefix for knocking things for, for, I'm um, not knocking things over, for doing something with a big bulky object, which includes, <laughs> which includes doing something with your butt. So there's, you know, they have special verbs for wrestling actions by using the appropriate, you know, the appropriate instrumental prefix. Oh, that's great. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's a surprisingly powerful tool. And then if you're, you're feeling superior and you can put funky, you know, concoct instruments that no natural language has, you know, like do something with your mind. George, your, your astral beings could maybe have 
you know, do something with who knows what, whatever spiritual energy floats around. So there, there are interesting possibilities there. That's very interesting. At first, I was when you were describing that, I was thinking of Chinese, in that sometimes it will have a general motion term and then add a more specific motion term, but it's actually a lot different from. Right. From this that is not. Actually. This is. This is. This is not that. So one language that has a bunch of these is called Kashaya, K-A-S-H-A-Y-A. And if you do, you know, a Google on Kashaya language, it will take you straight to the Wikipedia article, which has the whole list. So we've got things like ba, which means to do with the lips or the snout or by speech. It's tsa, that means with the rear end, a massive or bulky object or a knife. That that's pretty, seems... Uh, that's, a, that's a funny mix. These things get moved on. Interesting. The prefix mu, with a quick movement, heat, light, mind, or emotions. So, and then there's like. by blowing and, and by pushing and pulling, all of these. It's it's kind of a specialization of noun incorporation. I like, uh, I like uh, I said, is it ka? Yeah. Ka between forces with the teeth by chewing, eating. Yeah. So it's, uh, used, I guess it's usually used to refer to with the the teeth, but it's any time you have two things smashing together over the object, right? Right. Well, that appears to be the case. In in some languages, you may have a large set of verb roots which never appear alone. They will always have some instrumental prefix or other. So it's just, you know, spending some time on Wikipedia looking at grammars of languages you've never heard of before can often give you interesting ideas for, for word creation. Yeah. Again, always these things that if you'd invented by yourself, you'd be, aha, I've done something new. <laughs> but we all know the rule. You haven't. <laughs> no. It exists. Uh, somewhere. So, I, I feel I just like that to... happened to me the other day, too. What'd you do? I'm trying to remember. Continue. Maybe I'll remember by the end of this. Right, while well, you think. I, I wanted to, to bring up one more of this great West Greenlandic suffix. So we all have heard the horrible story about the myth- mythical 40 words for snow, or however many it is, in Eskimo. Then it's, of course, nonsense, but they do have a verb-creating suffix, which specifically means to freeze in one's X. <laughs> so... You suffix that to nose, and you've got a verb meaning that you're freezing in your nose, and, and so forth. Ah. I think that says more than than the mythical words for snow. Yes, that sort of says the same thing as the mythical words for snow without making stuff up. Right. <laughs> so really, could you really find that many distinctions for snow? I mean, English has like four or five, actually. Talk but, to a skier, they can come up with that many words. They're not separate lexical items, but... Yeah, but I couldn't think... I couldn't believe anybody could come up with 40. Well, right. Because everyone speaks, everyone imagines they're an expert on language. Certainly, <laughs> that's, it's certainly true of uh, reporters. Oh, God. So, yeah, that's the problem with the 40 words for snow. It's... It's it's like the Italian saying, you know, if it's not true, it's well constructed. You know, it's a good story. <laughs> two people are just too tempted by that. Yeah. Uh, but story. derivational morphology techniques, actually, real quick. What techniques do you guys like more depending on, you know, I mean, 
even basic stuff that you have in English, nouning, verbing, compounding, that kind of thing. And then also, you know, the phrases taken as words and all that. Do you guys use one of those more than usual, or is it... I'm actually really slack with derivational morphology. It's like, I definitely don't know much about it. I just kind of make stuff up. Like, you mentioned taking the thing I did from Spanish, and I very much took the idea off of Spanish for any out compounds. Um, but I don't have much in the way of derivational morphology. Um, like, even, like, the derivation, which goes with, like, the English ER, like a doer, a cooker, or whatever. A cooker. That would be a chef. I'm retarded. Um, <laughs> but um, even that, I like that one because it's just an extension of an existing affix, the definite affix. So to say, like, someone's an artist, it's actually literally the art. So I like when you can spread meanings around like that. Hmm. Even if it's not its own thing. That's that's really interesting, actually. So, artist and the art, whenever that would appear, would look the same. Yeah, they'd even sound the same. That's interesting. I just have a number of different derivational tools. As I said, Yeltak has more derivation than, than Airuyo. And actually, some of the derivation in Airuyo was I took one root and added different noun declension forms, different uh, noun classes, basically. So I have a root O, and I'm trying to think. Basically, one with the, the divine uh, gender, it means an immortal soul, and then with the a uh, mortal gender, it means like a, a human or a mortal. But that's one of those weird things about that language. And that probably, that occurs in languages with gender. I wouldn't, re I wouldn't recommend doing it very often because it usually tends to be a rare thing. Um. If you have a complicated gender system, like most of the Bantu languages, then it's a pretty standard trick. Hmm. Like, so Swahili does this sort of thing, and Swahili's very restrained. It only has eight genders. Some of the others, you know, they get you up, get up to 20 or something. Have this as a, have this as a really great resource. For example, oh. the diminutive involves moving something to a separate class in most of those languages. Oh, that's interesting. Well, anyway, I think we need to move along a little bit here. Uh, so, what? Where <laughs> would we send people to go? What should people need <laughs> to learn about how to come up with better derivational systems? You should send me there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do we, make... Do we well, have any resources to link to? Yeah, we can. We I'll concoct a few, and we can put those along when the, the this is posted. Yeah, okay. Yeah, send me, or just list some on the dock, and I will put some resources. So we'll okay. have some resources on the show notes for this. But keep in mind a bunch of the different things we talked about and think about different ways, either derivational morphology or with 
ways to generate different routes to to think about this stuff. And, and especially think about your tricks for turning verbs into nouns might be able to do double duty as syntax. So in classical Arabic, in addition to memorizing the very complicated verb system for every verb root, you have to memorize a mastar, which is the noun. And it can be either used as a plain verbal noun, but it is also a requirement for certain kinds of subordination. So Really? I think I do that in Amyadi. Oh, I feel so brilliant now. <laughs> but it, it's, it's what is our rule? Right. Yes. If someone created someone before, if you invented it and it's learnable by humans, it exists. Well, well, yeah, but I never knew that, so I feel like I did something significant that's different from my own. No, I right. I agree with that. That's good to come, come up on your own. All right. Never mind. But it's important, <laughs> I think, to remember that. When we're thinking about derivation, a noun is a role a word plays in a sentence more than it is some fundamental category. We're used to think of nouns as being, you know, a person, place, or thing, but not really. In a lot of languages, some sort of nouning process is required because you just have to have a noun in certain places. Indeed. Or you could just be an inyok and the roots can switch between verb or noun freely. And it doesn't matter. Sure, but don't they take things like case marking and so forth? Yeah, but this, that's pretty much the only difference. That's enough. Is, well, it, yes. is it kind of like, I know English has a zero morph conversion. Yeah, it's pretty much like English in that sense. Yeah. Not that anyone would say Inyok is like English. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, people sort of derogatorily refer to languages as too much like English, but having... Once in a while, one feature or another feature that's like English is not really a death sentence. <laughs> no. Maybe next time I'll do some weird helper verb for negatives. <laughs> I'll never do that. It's horrible. <laughs> it's not that uncommon, though. It turns out to be surprisingly common. It's not just English and, 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 and it's not just Finnish. There, there are plenty of languages that do something like it. I think it's retarded. <laughs> really? <laughs> When, when I when I started to understand what that exactly was, I thought it was kind of weird. Yeah. But anyway, why don't we move on to our um, our featured conlang, which today we're talking about Tokipona. Uh, Tokipona was created by Sonia Ellen Kisa to reflect a philosophy of quote-unquote, saying more with less. It has only 123 broadly defined words which are combined to come to more specific meanings. Many common phrases reflect Kisa's personal life philosophy, and she believes that the language can help people change their thinking and be more honest with each other. And I'm going to say, at the at first... Uh, when I actually looked at the website for the language, I was considering removing it from my list of possible <laughs> But until William actually told me, no, look at her vocabulary and think of Chinese measure words. You might get a little sense of this from our first episode, but the Chinese measure words are, they can also be used as regular nouns, but they have very general meanings like long, thin things. Or like short, uh, 
stick-like thing or stuff like that. And I think the way her her actual words work is very similar to that. Right. Right. The the thing that struck me most about Tokipona is how many of these root words happen to cover a frame that would neatly fit into one classifier, whether it's a, a count word in Chinese or the classificatory verbs of, you know, Navajo and, and so many other native languages. So, for example, she's got a word lupa, which means whole loop window door orifice. So that's a common one. Um, we have linea, which is line, family, rope, thread, string, cord, chain, on the one hand, but she also has, where is it? There's a word for long, thin, rigid things, but I can't find it now. Oh, palisa, a rod stick, longer, pointy thing. All of these and, and you know, other ones, plants and, and so forth. I think... Uh, uh Somebody who studies Freudian psychology might uh, take something from both of us just pointed out stuff that means long, thin things or something similar to that. No. No. They're, they're so common. They're just all over the planet. And it's an obvious shape in nature, so I don't think we need to, to read anything weird into that. But she also uh, has... I just said somebody will be chuckling about it. I'm sure I'm sure they will. Let's see if they can read something into the wide spate wide covering flat things. That's another one. Very common. Yeah. Containers, another common one. So I think deep thinking went into the word choice, these these primitives because so much vocabulary can be dumped into can be dumped into these things. Yeah. And that's very interesting that she just basically most of her words are very broad categories and then she can make more specific or more complex things by combining the words. But is that necessarily much different from when she's combining the words, is that much different from just making uh, long compound words? I don't think it is. I mean, there's this weird issue, right? So she has this philosophy behind the language, which drives me bonkers. But <laughs> one of the things that she, her idea is, and she even says it here, is because of this, as a speaker, you rely a lot on context to interpret what is going on. You become connected to the world around you. Here's the problem. Everyone communicating in Tokipona is doing so over the internet. <laughs> right. Or most of them. I mean, I'm sure there are some people who've met and, and spoken in person, but for the most part, the, the life of Tokipona takes place online and there's no context there except some conversational context. So people find themselves producing the monstrous words, huge chains of, of roots to try to produce, um, intelligible conversation. We all know the challenges of communicating with normal languages right. online with this language that obviously is going to be heavily context-dependent. It's going to be even worse. Bianca, you've been kind of uh, quiet since we started talking about this. Do you have any thoughts, opinions on this? Well, I have opinions. Um, surprise, I don't like it, but... 
Um, I was trying to think of something, but I feel like William mentioned everything that was kind of annoying me about it. And that, <laughs> well, the opposite thing. I feel like because I don't know if that much thought went into the word choice because they're so common, like the ideas behind them, that I feel like they're just natural selections. It's not like that hard of a thing to come up with. I just feel like it's like, why would you make this? I don't know. I don't know what else to add other than what he's already said. <laughs> well, well, I re- honestly, I recommend it as for people who are thinking about new ways to come up with words, they might find interesting value in Tokipona. Not as something to do, not to reproduce it, not come up with your own Tokipona. Yeah, I recommend it, but- it as something not to do. No, no. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't like the philosophy behind it, but I reckon this is. I'm going to be saying this about every language we look at. There's some really interesting things going on here. Careful decisions were made in terms of how on earth do you make grammar work with this? I yeah. think the reason I'm so not happy with this is because every once in a while I get someone who goes onto the forums. Look, I've made a new minimalist slang, and then I'm like, oh god. Not again. And unfortunately, after a while, I get kind of like, enough, enough, enough. But Well, yeah. this is better than Aoi was. Well, I don't know what that is. But. <laughs> is I'm not fond of the philosophy behind it. The You can look at the lexicon and look at the various, very classifier-like words. There's stuff like, there's something that means like a quote-unquote non-cute reptile or something. There's just these general terms that could be useful to you to create some words like that. I would suggest if you're actually creating something you want to use, you also have more specific words or something. If it's a realistic language, it'll have some more specific words than this. Because oh, no, no, no. I don't mean take this vocabulary. Don't take the, the root set. I mean, if you go to the Tokipona website, they'll have page after page of thematic vocabulary that's produced by compounding these things. Look at that. Look at how I that... I think it's nice. I think thematically it is interesting because sometimes what I like to do um, is just kind of do like a little hidden link between things that are like thematically related even if it's just something subtle like a lot of nature words being part of the feminine gender or a lot of um, just little things where like some things that are kind of thematically related like colors or smells kind of being similar but not quite the same I think you could do that with a lot of her more general words which would be interesting, but beyond that, I just feel like there's not much to go on here. Her numeral system caught my eye, even though it looks like it would be devilishly difficult to use. Because it's basically, she has like four different numbers, and you add them together by repeating the words. Well, right. She's th- that's part of the philosophy. You shouldn't ever need to say these things. Yes. Which no, I don't really agree with. <laughs> well, is. right. We we've all agreed. None of us agree with the philosophy behind this. But if you're going to do that, this makes me sad. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I think we all I, th- kind of- I think Bianca needs to create a language that has everything she hates. No. <laughs> make it make a minimalist language with that has like three vowels and four consonants and a negative and has very restricted uh, lexicon and I like small vowel systems. But no. whatever. Well, I and don't has three vowels. That's true, isn't it? Yeah. If I made like a hate lang, it would have be like it would be like this where number system based off of five or some crap. And then there would be like ten words and you know, it would be OVS or some crap. <laughs> Base six number, base five numbers. That's interesting. Yeltok is it not base six. five? It looks like base five the way I'm reading the, it. They don't have the. I don't know what the. I don't know if you can really put it down to a numeral base. Let I me look put at it. The, the actual numbers. Yeah, what it's, you have is you have. Uh, There's one, five. Two, 20 and 100, I guess. That's kind of retarded. Yeah, 1, 2, 5, 20, and 100. And the way that you get other numbers is you add them together by repeating so that yeah. um, no. 3 is 2, 1. Or 2, 1 is the words. And then 45 is mute mute luca, which is 20, 20, and 5. So it's a little... it's. I guess you might try to put it down as base 20. I mean, you could put it as a mixed system, but it's barely a system at all. It's not really like a place value system. It's a a totally weird thing. It's like if you decided, oh, make a number system. I'm too lazy to choose anything, so you're just going to have to add the numbers together. <laughs> no, I think it's a lot of thought, <laughs> no, sorry. actually. But, um, I, I always, that for me, coming up with numbers is always the most hated task of inventing a language. Um, what's weird about this is, well, right, we're not, why should we even talk about what's natural and unnatural in this language? It is weird to have this extremely difficult number system, which... Presumably, you're discouraged from using. And when yet, I run into number systems, I when I create number systems, I have a tendency to go with the super simple Chinese solution. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't care enough to go into that much detail with it. Number systems aren't my thing. Tokipona number system is certainly not my thing. <laughs> yeah. One day you'll pick a language that I like. <laughs> yeah. I I don't know. I think it's kind of agreed. None of us are particularly like this language. Yeah. But that doesn't mean there are things, things to take it that from interest it. us. But I'm having a hard time finding it here. This is <laughs> it's it's another example of current trends and and fads in conlanging, which is either heavily naturalistic or heavily, heavily not. <laughs> right? <laughs> there are, there are pl- plenty of people learning Tokipona and trying to use Tokipona and writing articles about how to come up with useful vocabulary in Tokipona, which is funny since that must 
must fight somewhat against her purpose for creating the language. <laughs> well, that's why I don't like it. It's like if you want to use it, you have to like alter what's there in such a way as to make it not itself. Right. Right. Which well, is just counterproductive. Yeah. This episode is running a little long already. So, <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm going to take the comment I was going to mention at the end and put it onto the next episode. Okay. But I think this was. Oh, a very I like that weird... comment. What? All right. Sorry, never mind. Yeah. So I'm going to sort of end it here and. But we had a nice discussion uh, about word formation in Tokipana 2, and you got our list. You guys listening, you can take get that get some resources on word formation uh, in our show notes, and also the link to the Tokipana site if you want to look at it. My last thing is, I just mainly want to say. Tokipona, a language with 123 words, really? <laughs> words are cheap. You don't have to limit them that much. <laughs> but anyway, we'll see you. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find all our episodes and show notes, as well as subscribe to our iTunes or RSS feeds through conlangery.com conlang.org You can also like our Facebook page or follow at conlangery on Twitter. If you would like to contact us with corrections, comments, questions, or suggestions, or even suggest your own conlang as a feature, please email conlangery at gmail.com or call into our new voicemail line 304 Eight seven three six two eight one. We also have a handy suggestions form on our site. Our theme music was created by Xander Vidaeus. <laughs>